You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp, and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started... Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Today we're talking all about household finances, the situation before coronavirus, the immediate impact and the long-term changes we can expect once things return to normal, or should I say the new normal? What levels of unemployment can we expect? What will happen to wages? What about immigration? What does a recession mean for most Australians? And how will this translate into property prices? In this episode, we welcome back Brendan Coates, Household Finances Program Director at the Grattan Institute. Brendan joined us back in episode 89, and if you haven't tuned into that one, I encourage you to because we really tackled the big issues there, including the affordability crisis, tax reform, and whether or not we'll all have enough superannuation to retire on. Brendan's research focuses on tax reform, economic and budget policy, retirement incomes and superannuation housing, transport infrastructure and cities. He's the perfect person to help us understand what's really likely to happen in the wake of COVID-19. Thank you for joining us today, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, Absolutely loved our last chat in Melbourne. Um, It was the closest I've ever come to missing a flight, so that's how good it was. But, um, I mean, what I loved about the conversation in particular is I went in there with lots of kind of big questions around tax reform and um, your approach is, you know, extremely pragmatic and, you know, you're not willing to back down from the big issues. So, at the moment, um, there's more big issues than we can poke a stick at. So can you give our listeners just a bit of an understanding on how bad things have become in the employment sector just over the last four weeks? Because it's very difficult to get a grasp on how big things are. Yeah, that's right. This is like nothing that we've really experienced in our lifetime. So the economy's basically gone from cruising along at pretty close to 60 k's an hour more or less doing the speed limit, maybe a little bit less, and it literally hit a brick wall uh, in the last couple of weeks of March. So that's never happened before, that kind of sudden stop. Um, And what it's essentially meant is that because of COVID-19 and the social distancing measures that we've put in place, that whole swathes of of sectors of the economy have essentially just been shut down overnight, Um, particularly, you know, things in the restaurants and hospitality sector, um, arts and recreation, and we've seen that in the. Uh, in fact, the the government has done a better job than I'd probably expected in getting some early statistics out there. That we're actually seeing that um, the number of people who have lost their jobs, uh, they've actually put together some pretty good data out of the um, out of the single touch payroll system, the ATO runs, uh, that shows that something like eight hundred thousand Australians 
in that survey lost their jobs in the last couple of weeks of March, although I still think that that's probably an underestimate because uh, it captures those people who were, it's capturing those people that were had lost their jobs, but it's probably not capturing some of those people who have also lost their jobs, but were still getting paid in the last period of that pay cycle. So they've, they've finished their, they, they're no longer working, but they got paid the following week. So I suspect it's still an underestimate of kind of what's happened in the economy. But it does show that there's a big problem in Australia where we just don't have really good up-to-date labour force statistics. So in the US, you know, you've seen these weekly uh, hits to um, numbers of people that have applied for unemployment insurance. Um, you know, the latest data that we have in Australia, I think, is still December 2019. So it's just completely out of date. So the ABS has actually done a reasonable job of filling the filling stepping into the breach in the short term. So eight hundred thousand. I mean, I used to. Um, there's a problem with using outdated statistics. I used to always think the labour force was ten mil, but I know its uh, population's risen since then, etc. So in my head, I go eight hundred thousand workforce is say ten mil. That's about an eight percent jump, but it's probably more like a six or something. So how big is eight eight hundred thousand? Is that about a six percent jump in the unemployment rate? So say you know, five and a half to 11 and a half? Yeah, so it's, a, it's about a six, between a six and seven percent um, hit to employment. Uh, mind you, there's other data that's come out um, that suggested there was a household survey, much smaller sample size, the ABS released the day before on the Monday, that suggested that something like 16% of people are out of work. Um, so, you know, it's still really early on in trying to understand what's going on. But on, on the face of it, at least six or seven percent of people have lost their jobs. Um, it's probably bigger than that, is, and that's what our estimates uh, point to. And so we are talking about an unemployment rate that's probably already hit something like 10%. And I guess there's um, the unemployment rate is such a funny number anyway, right, because you've got underemployment, you know, your, your hours, you want to work more, but you can work only giving you 30 hours a week, but you want 40 or whatever. Um, you've got, uh, you know, even if you're only working five hours a week, you're still cast as employed um so you've got uh you know what about things like temporary residents kind of going back they've kind of left the workforce altogether um you know what are some of the things that you know people are missing when they just focus on the unemployment at one rate well i think the big thing that you're missing is the fact that there's there's kind of two reasons why the unemployment rate won't pick up everyone who's who's had their livelihoods hit by this the first reason is that some people, quite a lot of people who lose their jobs, they don't immediately start looking for another one. And we saw this same in the 1990s recession where a whole generation of older people, uh, older workers who lost their jobs in that yeah. process just never worked again. You know, they often ended yeah. up on the disability support pension. Um, and so by not being in the labour force, so not actively looking for work, they don't actually show up as being unemployed. So that's going to underestimate it for one. And the second is actually what the government's done in response. So the JobKeeper wage subsidy scheme, uh, which, you know, we think is a really good idea. Like it's not perfect and I think we're going to see more and more holes open up in that over the course of the next three or four weeks, um, or like really messy administrative problems. Um, but one of the – what it's done is essentially it's, it's allowing – workers it's cushioning workers from the blow from what is hopefully a temporary hit to their incomes but one of the consequences is you're still being paid by your employer so when the abs asks you are you receiving a wage from your employer the answer is going to be yes and so again you're not going to show up as being unemployed 
which is why we we've estimated that the actual hit to employment is probably somewhere in the range of four of our 14 to 26 percent of all workers even if the unemployment rate only hits 10 to 15 percent um over that period yeah i mean the big ones there is that you know you think about that 60s onwards employee for example um ageism is pretty real um and you know if they do lose their job now um and they can't potentially, you know, get another job because, you know, job listings are all-time lows as well. Um, you know, do they ever go back into employment? Or do they go straight to the pension? Do they, you know, you know, that's a big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Like it's worth pointing out that in this crisis, it's overwhelmingly hitting younger workers just because of the kind of professions that require a lot of close physical proximity tend to be those that. Um, you know, younger people working, so people who work in hospitality, people who work in the arts, um, whereas yeah. older workers tend to be are less exposed, a bit less exposed because um, they tend to be working less in those professions. But, yeah, this is this yeah. is the crux of it. If, if this is a relatively short-run thing where it's only a couple of months and then we come out the other side and things go back looking a, reason, a lot like normal, then the hit to employment in the long term may not be that large. Um, but in the world where it's going to be a fairly long run thing where people lose their attachment to labor force for a long time or the firm that they work for goes out of business. And I think that's the one we've got to be really worried about. Um, then yeah, you'll see potentially a repeat of what we saw in the nineties where a whole swathe of workers, older workers just never went back, never went back to work again. And this time around, they don't have the disability support pension to rely on anywhere near as much because it's much harder to get. Um, it's also much harder to get for older people because they tighten the eligibility around things like musculoskeletal injuries, which is, tends to be the sort of thing where you do your back in your 50s and used to go on DSP. That's much harder to get. Um, and so New Start, you know, being what it has been historically, has been a very low level of payment. Um, and if we go back to that level of payment again, which I think is unlikely, we'll go all the way back there, it does mean a, a bunch of people lose their livelihoods, they end up on a, in a pretty, raw pl- pretty rough place for quite a long time before they retire. It's interesting you're talking about um, that the younger workers are hardest hit. And so what are some of the long-term implications of that? Um, because, of course, you don't want a whole generation of underemployed or un- unemployed people, do you? I mean, what does that set us up for? Well, this is what we saw during past recessions is that those that start their, that start being employed um, in the middle of a recession, they start their work or their work careers in the middle of a recession tend to do pretty badly. Um, so you see there are long, typically there are long-term implications for their earnings. So we call this labour market scarring. Um, so the kinds of connections and the kind of skills that you normally you, you normally establish early on in your career, you don't get yeah. as much of that just because, you know, fewer people are hiring graduates out of university. There's fewer jobs going around. And if you don't get attached to the labor force early on, then um, life can get can get pretty hard. And you see that that flow, those impacts are they're permanent. They will last um, for someone's whole working life that they'll have lower incomes than those on either side. Isn't that also assuming, though, that we have one career, we go to uni, we study for something, and then we go and practice in that area? I mean, because, you know, I've heard some stats around saying that, like, millennials, for instance, will have six careers in their life. Um, and if that's the case, does it matter so much? 
Well, it still matters because you're, regardless of what career you're in, the labor market's not in your favor in any of them, right? So um, it still affects your long-term earnings, even if you are jumping uh, between careers over time. And I'm, I've, w- there, is, there is a debate um, amongst labor economists as to whether, you know, work is becoming less secure and whether people are moving around more. I haven't seen a lot of evidence that it's actually happening that much. Um, that, you know, the, the, the rates of, say, casual work, the rates which people are switching jobs doesn't appear to be that different as my understanding is what it has been historically. Um, but we yeah, certainly see in the studies, well, compared yeah. to the last 20 or 30 years, right? So we, we, don't tend, we do tend to see that um, if you move into an employment in a major economic downturn, then, you know, it does hit your probability of employment and your future earnings for a decade or more. And I suspect... The way to think about it is probably you've got different options that you might like to think about doing as your career, and what a recession does is it just limits your options. So in in career one, um, you might have been thinking between three jobs, and one of them pays sixty grand, and the others pay forty five. And in in and in a recession, the sixty grand one doesn't exist, and so it probably it does hit you in the long term, even if you might then change jobs later on. And on the flip side of that, though, do living costs go down in a recession? Well, I think we're about to experience a period of deflation. So I think you're right um, that in this period, well, look, we've seen oil prices, crude oil prices go Mm. negative for the first time ever, um, (laughs) uh, which has been fascinating. I I couldn't believe it It was like half half the price I paid last time. And I think I only filled up five weeks ago. It is weird. That's what negative prices should be. So you should be able to go to a petrol station um, and actually get paid 50 bucks to go. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that go through yet, but <laughs> let me know if you see it. I don't know if refining costs have gone to zero yet, but um, <laughs> it is, it is, it is, it is uh, I think, you know, we often worry, it is the one upside of this period is that you're seeing the prices of, well, at least some things are a lot cheaper. So the prices of some essentials are cheaper now. Like rent is going to be cheaper. I think mm-hmm. that's undoubtedly going to be true, um, which is something I suspect we'll touch on. Um, so what's weird is that because of the JobKeeper package the government's put in place, um, you know, I actually suspect poverty might even go down a little bit during this period. Measured poverty and measured financial stress will fall because it's so generous to low-income earners. You know, I'm sure you've probably talked about this. Okay. In terms of doubling of unemployment benefits, in terms of JobKeeper, sometimes even if you're on working part-time, you basically get a pay rise sometimes. <laughs> yeah, my neighbour. That's My neighbour's got two kids in their 20s, both like they've been working part-time at, say, a chemist warehouse for more than a year. They're going to be earning the equivalent of $39,000 a year for the next six months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think the, the other side of the coin, and your research, and there's lots of other research that just, is very similar to your research around um, amount of savings, amount of buffers people have, amount of cash flow they have each month, um, just in case you know they need to spend money on something like a new fridge or something like that. It's pretty diabolical all over the world, not just Australia, US, UK. We have very, very little buffer. How bad um, does that impact things? Because yes, there's been a delay with JobKeeper. There's, you know, how much are we just running things to you know every month? 
hand to mouth sort of thing. Yeah, well, so our research shows that the average working household, half of them have got less than $7,000 in the bank. Um, 20% have got less than 500 bucks. Uh, so, you know, you're talking about a large number of people that don't have much in the way of financial buffer. That's consistent with, you know, a lot of these surveys, as you mentioned, Chris, that sort of point to, you ask people, can you raise 500 bucks in an emergency or five grand? And the number of people who say yes is actually relatively small. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's why the policy response from government has been so important because if they hadn't have done it, you know, we'd be looking at a Great Depression. I think there's no doubt that that's yeah. what we were looking at in mid-March. Um, and it was amazing watching the government very quickly, probably, you know, a week or two slower than ideal, but, you know, fair credit, they got there pretty fast, go from thinking about spending $5 billion to spending $200 billion, which is, you know, 10% of Australia's GDP, 20% in six months, in a couple of weeks. Like, it was amazing to watch. Um, And that's because the average Australian doesn't have that much in savings. Now, partly that's not always crazy because a lot of people don't have that much cash in the bank. They've got more money sitting in other some people have got a lot of money sitting in other assets. You probably don't want your, a lot of your money sitting in cash in the middle of a, a period when interest rates are at three, two, one, two, three percent. Um, but it does show there are a lot of people who get by on not very much uh, or don't have much in the way of a buffer. And as soon as something like this happens, if you don't intervene, uh, then you'll get defaults pretty quickly and people will be hit the wall pretty quick. So you've said a lot of, you know, you sound like you're very optimistic on how the government's been handling things or positive. Um, and, you know, from afar, it's, you know, I think speaking to you last time, you know, a lot of what you're looking to do is tax reform and thinking about ways the government can do things better. Um, how, how could the government have done things better? Or what would you have done differently? Or what's some other things they're not doing that they should be doing? So uh, I, I, you guys wouldn't know this, but um, my old job when I was at Treasury is I used to be the person responsible for, um, for preparing for pandemics. Back really? in 2008. Yes. So we're um, really talking to the right person. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting is that looking back on what we were thinking about, and obviously, you know, it's all internal to government, but, um, you know, I think what's clear is that they've done a good job of thinking about how to help households. Um, and in the sense that they, the Treasury and the government is well set up to assist households through the income support system, through the tax system, to give them enough money to, to get through. I think where they probably haven't done enough or where the cracks are going to start to show is our ability to deliver money to businesses that are in trouble. Uh, because yeah. job, job keeper, because it is that, that flat amount of 30, 30, essentially 1500 bucks a fortnight, you know, you have to pay that regardless of, of um, you know, how much your worker earned. Like the, the firm doesn't actually get a lot for that. A lot most of the benefit actually goes to the worker, which is fine. Like that's the intent but they probably well, what do, I'd be worried you do, about. You do get to pocket it if your worker earns more than that. Um, there's also the um, PAYG payback, and apologies if I've got the terminology wrong, but there are, there is some other support for small business as well. Um, what Brendan's saying, I think, and that's, you know, is that it hasn't happened fast enough, I, I believe. I mean, you the JobKeeper, there's a delay on it. Mm. Um, so you keep paying your staff members till then. Secondly, the... the the PAYG kind of up to a hundred thousand dollars, you know, but minimum of twenty. That hasn't come anywhere near the bazers yet. 
and then also oh, my, the it's coming to mind. It's it started. I, I think. Well, uh, but I mean, look, I know we'll get back to you and see, Brendan. But I I think households not having buffers is um, one thing. I think that that's really um, it's a problem in our society that people well maybe not be able to afford to, but also not. Um, you know, everyone's got probably got latest televisions and you know what I mean? It's if people are prioritising having everything now rather than actually saving for rainy day because we're not used to having rainy days. Um, but then businesses is different and I get that hospitality, for instance, you just shut the doors and all of a sudden revenue just slams shut. I mean, that's how do you prepare for that? Um, but I, I do know that it, a business... It's like when you're looking in property, right? Residential property is treated differently to commercial property because the assumption is that people in business are meant to actually have a better understanding of all these fiscal stuff than, than you know, the regular Joe Blow. And I, I think sort of the same goes for business. And it's really important to support business, but I think we need to expect that business owners and business managers have a sense of understanding of preparing for downturns. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they absolutely sure. I think what's just unprecedented here is no one would have expected, and maybe we should have, you know, government has certainly thought about this. Bill Gates has been going on about it for quite a few years about the risk of a pandemic, is that, you know, you've just had to shut down whole sectors of the economy um, for to achieve a public health objective. And that was the right thing to do. But it has the effect that, you know, that a bunch of businesses literally can't earn livelihoods and they've they've got obligations, they've got contractual obligations they put in place in an era um, that looks nothing like the one we're in now. So I think rents, commercial rents is the classic example. Like the, the market value of a commercial rental right now, if you're in a retail space, is practically zero. You know, if you were to mm. negotiate a contract right now, you wouldn't be able to get anyone to rent that space. Um, but what you've got is a bunch of businesses that um, are signed up to rents. Um, you know, those rents are quite substantial. In the case of the average retailer pays about 12 grand a month, the average gym about 10 grand. And the, we've been pretty slow in trying to work out how to solve that problem. So, what I think is interesting is that there seems to be a blanket approach to sort of help everybody, which I get, and it's nice for me as a business that hasn't been shut down. Um, it's nice to know there's a cushion there. But yeah, I think, you know, I guess my roundabout way of coming around to it is that some businesses have been thrown into massive disarray. They just can't. You could never have planned for it. Other businesses you know, could be able to trade through with their buffers. Do you know what I mean? And I, and I wonder whether there should be more emphasis going to those that have really had to stop versus everyone. Well, the challenge is how you target that assistance because the thing is government just doesn't know as much about those. Governments don't know firms' balance sheets the way they do uh, um, households' tax returns. You know, mm. if you're sitting in Treasury, you can see everything going on or a lot of what's going on inside a household's finances because, you know, they've got, they're, they're paying tax on their income, they're, they're claiming all the deductions. You've got a pretty good picture of, you know, whether they've got an investment property, all this sort of stuff. Inside mm, a firm, yeah. you just can't see any of that, um, which makes it really hard to give support to firms because we're just not no, set yeah. up to do that. And, you know, there's reasons why you want to be a bit careful there because you do worry about phoenixing. So, you know, it's not as if I can... I can disappear as a, as a human being and, and come back tomorrow as a separate legal entity, whereas you can do that as a firm. And so for every yeah. firm you help, you do worry that you're going to give some support to those that don't. But on the rents point, the thing I, I think we should have done, so the government's come out with a code of conduct that says, you know, we'll, we'll negotiate, you have to negotiate with your landlord and there's a process through which you have to go through. 
what I would have done is, um, you know, it's not really fair that some businesses get completely smashed by this and others don't. Uh, mm. It's it's just it's just that you were unlucky enough to be one of the sectors that had to be shut down to stop a pandemic. I would have probably offered rental discounts uh, to to businesses, but then paid for that through a higher rate of commercial land tax over the course of ten years. So you're basically defraying that cost of you. Basically, it's basically insurance. Like the government's basically just trying to insure people against the risk of a, a cost of a pandemic, which means def- pulling that risk across all landlords. Uh, would be better than saying the landlords that happen to rent to retailers and cafes get smashed and everyone else um, is sort of free. So that's probably how I would have tackled that. And it's probably the principle we should be using for this in general is you're trying to defray the costs of a severe shock to income that's affecting some people across everyone um, and stopping that all occurring at once and defraying it across time. So you're paying it back over 10, 20 years. Well, it's interesting you say that, uh, that in terms of moving to that model because, you know, what's your view on potentially state governments now potentially shifting to a land tax model for residential rather than stamp duty? Because, you know, I know this has been talked about for years, but it seems to be getting up a lot more steam and energy behind it now in this environment than, than usual. So I'd say that the the New South Wales government has been making some signals that it was keen to go down this path through their review of federal financial relations before this happened. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting is we now have seen the there's been some talk in the Herald Sun this week um, uh, about Victoria going down the same path. I think what it shows is they, it just reinforces to them how big the how volatile the revenue stream from stamp duties is. Because there's no yep. doubt that stamp duty revenues are going to collapse. Not necessarily because prices will fall that far, uh, but just because there'll be no turnover. There, will, there won't be any properties yes. transacted. Um, yep. And that's actually the thing that hurts the, the stamp duty revenues the most. It's not the prices. It's the turnover. Um, mm. So we've been big fans of this for a long time. It is Stamp duty is a much more, is a very inefficient tax. Um, and it's also, you know, pretty inequitable because you're basically funding the the health and um, education services provided by state governments out of a very narrow pool of people purchasing a property in a given year. Um, yeah. And those that have owned for a while or for a long time basically get to check out at the state tax system. Um, because, you know, if you buy property and hold it for 30 or 40 years, you pay stamp duty once, often you probably paid it a long time ago at a yeah. relatively cheap rate. You're not, you're not up again for anything for until either you downsize or, or you go into a nursing home. Um, so I think I think we will see more of a push for tax reform out as a result of this because the states are going to have big budgetary problems they're going to have to deal with long term. At a time when they probably need to start spending more to, you know, I can see some crazy things. New South Wales government buying $500 million of property is not going to like scratch the surface. <laughs> the, um, SMH today, like it's this big policy, it's going to change things. Not really, but... I do have um, to laugh at that though because you think about it that, you know, and we often say this, that first home buyers and sort of hapless investors in particular have been propping up the construction or the construction-led economy, right? And so, you know, it filters down fundamentally the people that really cop it or bear the brunt of it are the people buying this stuff. And so now the state government's turn around and saying all the stuff that can't be sold, which might not be really good quality, they're going to buy. I just think that's rather rather ironic. 
Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the state government definitely wants to keep the construction uh, industry uh, coming along and get people buying off the plan and house on their packages again because, you know, the amount of money they make in taxes along that journey. But Brendan, you mentioned, um, you know, I guess a few demographics that are, are really going to be affected. Obviously, the young who are in, you know, the hospitality and art sector. But what are some of the demographics and say, for example, young families that are going to be really impacted on this and their finances aren't going to be turned around fast because, you know, things don't take time to come back after big hits to unemployment. So if you're in the bottom 40% of the earnings distribution, so you're earning up to about 50 grand as a worker uh, or you're a household that's earning that as a couple, you're earning somewhere up to 80 or $90,000. If you lose your job due to COVID, you're relatively well protected, uh, which is to say that the JobKeeper package and the JobSeeker payments largely replace your pre-wage, your previous wage, because uh, you get a whole bunch of family tax benefit on top. You get some rent assistance if you're a renter. Um, you're paying a lower rate of tax. All these things mean that you know if you're in the bottom half of the earnings distribution, uh, which is where a lot of these workers are, you're relatively well insulated for the least the six months that JobKeeper remains in place. So yeah. the the gap in the policies, ironically, it's temporary migrants who have been left out completely, and that's a problem. Um, and high income earners, uh, which I, it's not consistent with the way that we think about these things in Australia. Australia has a very redistrib- redistributive tax transfer system. But, you know, unemployment insurance is basically insurance. It's basically there to protect people against the risk of losing their job. And what we've done is we've basically fully insured the bottom half of earners and we haven't really insured the top half. So the way I'd be thinking about this is it just depends. It's all a function of how long the public health crisis lasts, uh, which we just don't know yet. So if it's only a couple of months and we come out the other side, then I think you won't find too big impacts. But if this is six months where certain sectors of the economy basically can't reopen, um, so if you can't reopen restaurants properly and cafes properly and sporting fields, uh, sporting competitions can't have crowds, which I think is very unlikely they'll have crowds, then you have a bunch of people who lose their jobs, their livelihoods permanently or semi-permanently. And that's, I think, where we'll see the, the hit will come about as a result of some workers who are in those sectors that are hit permanently will find it hard to, you know, keep paying their mortgages. Um, the government and the banks have agreed for this for six months to provide mortgage holidays. But out the other side of that, you are going to see an increasing non-performing loans and you're going to see a bunch of people who have been had their incomes hit who are going to uh, spend less out the other side. Um, and I think that's what I'd be, I'd be worried about is the risk of defaults down the track and the risk that because if this is a long process, uh, a long public health crisis, people on the other side just won't spend the money they used to and then you end up with a, a deeper recession. So what would be the proportion of people who are protected the most, so say couples earning up to $90,000 previously, um, what proportion of those people would be homeowners, for instance? Um. So most, what's interesting and it's why we haven't called for, if I take the flip side, we haven't called for large sale rental holidays for residential uh, um, renters is because the the packages largely insulate them once they get the money. The problem Mm. is just making sure they don't get evicted uh, before (laughs) 
you know, frankly, don't get evicted before the before the money flows, um, which yeah. from the sound of it is going to be a few, still a few weeks. Um, but then they should be able to make up those arrears um, with their landlords. Uh, the risk is, I think, high, relative medium to high income homeowners, uh, because most 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 of the bottom half, are like a lot of them, rent. Half of them probably homeowners. Of the top half of the income distribution, most are homeowners. And that's probably yeah. where I'd be worried about the long-term costs is that they won't be able to keep paying those mortgages if they experience a permanent hit to their income if they're in those sectors. Mm. But is it true that the uh, lower incomes have got a higher chance of losing their jobs because of the industries they are? So that, yes, you might see that um, they are some are hit, but the, the actual volume or the actual quantity of higher and middle incomes that actually lose their job is much lower um, than, say, the bottom end? I think they're less likely to be directly affected, uh, which is to say they're less likely to lose their job because of spatial distancing if you're a high-income earner. But you might be quite yep. like we, you're a fair chance of losing work or there will be a hit to, to employment for high-income earners because of these second-round effects. So, you know, I work for a, a say, architects are the classic case. So the first thing that happens when you, you slow down construction is you basically just stop the architects working um, yeah. because that's the front end of the production pipeline. And we're seeing that a lot already. Um, you know, professional services firms were the number one group of firms that applied for the JobKeeper uh, subsidy, according to the ACO data. Yeah. Um, yeah. But because because they no one is – all the discretionary spending in the economy is basically stopping. So – Firms are cutting back their spending, their discretionary spending, in order to preserve cash flow to get through to the other side, and that's deepening the crisis. So I would say the risks for the bottom half, you know, we've always said in Australia we're not too worried about, you know, the the, the increase in debt because it's mainly occurring to high-income earning people with, with um, good income earning capacity and they're often ahead on their mortgages. I suppose what I'd be worried about is those second round impacts on sectors. That means sort of we've even seen today in, uh, you know, 3% of people working in financial services have lost their jobs according to the ABS data, you know, 4% in manufacturing, um, 8% in professional and technical services. Um, you know, it's obviously less than accommodation, which is a quarter, uh, but they are large falls. Um, and I think we're going to have a reckoning down the line where there will be those we're kicking the can down the road, which is the right thing to do. So we're f- making banks offer holidays, yeah. but at the other end, there's going to have to be some, there'll be some people that will struggle to repay those mortgages. And it, I, we don't quite know yet what we're going to do with those people. And we don't even understand the changes to consumer behavior, um, sentiments, you know, the way that we live our lives, um, you know, new habits that are getting formed by changing the way we have to live. Um, or even what's valuable and what do we value now coming out of this? You know, we value probably our families and time with them a lot more. Um, you know, I'm excited to see my parents this weekend, which I haven't seen for seven weeks. So, you know, I guess it's just trying to change. We don't actually know how we're going to change out of this and how big is the impact um, to consumer sentiment, I guess, because um, I know looking at consumer surveys, um, it's been pretty diabolical and that's, shows that we're pretty concerned out there. Yeah, so if you look at um, the consumer surveys, the week, before, the week before JobKeeper was announced, it was the worst ever. Um, once JobKeeper came back, it became, you know, as bad as the 1990s recession, 
which is a yeah. big improvement, but still not a, a glowing voting confidence, a vote of confidence in what's going to happen to the economy. The really interesting data that I've been tracking is stuff that Alpha Beta have been putting out. I don't know if you've seen it. I'm looking at real-time consumer spending um, in partnership with Ilion, and they're suggesting that spending per person is currently about 15% below normal normal levels. Yeah. You know, that's, that's depression era at the moment um, for spending to fall that far. Um, it's interesting to see what people are spending money on though, isn't it? That's right. So the Ilion... Um, data coming out it's really interesting <laughs> home improvements well, hardware yeah uh toast not toasters uh you know bake your own bread fitness uh yeah diy uh home you know uh you know exercise <laughs> um there's lots of uh you know going back to the basics rather than you know the more frivolous sort of you know, spending. Oh, there's going to be a lot of treadmills out in the council cleanups in a year or two, I reckon. <laughs> but I do think um, one of the consequences of all this is that people are still exposed. A lot of people are still wearing the cost of this on their own balance sheets. You know, they're drawing down their savings, particularly if they're higher income earners, mm-hmm. and that's going to affect their spending long term. So there's going to be a, st- a structural shift in the economy. Um, a yeah. way, you know, the way to think about it is that some production technology, some capital is now worth, it's less productive than it used to be. So if you, sports stadiums are less valuable now than what they were, you know, two months ago. Um, yeah. My brother-in-law used to work for one of the catering companies there. That firm is going to be in deep trouble for a long time because there's basically not going to be anyone coming back to those sports stadiums for quite a long time. Um, and so you're going to see that structural shift towards more food home delivery. We've seen a lot of restaurants have been pretty good at um, offering home delivery of food, uh, whereas cafes are struggling because no one really gets a home delivered coffee. Uh, but in the long term, uh, because in the medium term, because that's the balance sheets have been impaired, the spending is not going to come back for a while. Um, and one thing we haven't talked about is migration, which I think is going to be in- incredibly important for the housing market we're going to lose probably a couple hundred thousand people a year for a couple of years. Uh, that's a big difference yeah. to how much construction you actually need. Let's talk about that because um, what do you think, let's say we do have to have the borders shut um, and the quarantine, which is interesting you mentioned about the food company because, you know, one of the biggest food companies out there that supplies the airports and, you know, air traffic, for example, and all the meals on airplanes, um, they're getting all the isolation, uh, you know, feeding all the people coming into the country um, and giving them three meals a day. So companies having to pivot. But, you know, the impact on migration in the next couple of years, yes, that's potentially giving us time to play catch-up, which is what we were hoping, you know, the state state government was asking for anyway. But what do you think the government will do on the other side of the coin um, to say shouldn't we just pick up the speed and... Instead of importing 200, we go back to, say, 300 or we go up to three or 400,000 people. Do you think the government will just go overtime on um, migration in the future? So much is uncertain at the moment because we don't know how COVID ends. Um, so in the absence of a vaccine, and so now the last of epidemiologists, but we do, we do track, the, track that debate very closely. Um, you know, if, if, if I can imagine two scenarios. Scenario one is, is that Australia does better than the rest of the world in, in dealing with COVID, which is what, what we're on track to do now. Um, 
if we can effectively manage that process faster than everyone else and potentially even eradicate the virus, which is we're actually on track to do if we keep up uh, the current shutdown for a period, then Australia becomes enormously attractive as a place for, for people to come. Uh, this is what happened during the GFC because we didn't really have a recession or it wasn't a traditional recession. Um, yeah. Net overseas migration went up because all these Irish backpackers came to Australia because they couldn't get work in Australia, in Ireland. Uh, mm. So if the, the, it's how good we are, how well we're doing relative to everyone else, I think will make us is, Isn't this different largely because do we really want to reopen the borders if we've eradicated it without a vaccine, without treatment? Because by opening up the borders, then we're opening up the opportunity for it to come back into the country. So basically you've got to quarantine everybody so that keeps the airline food manufacturer in business um you know like would people want to come here it's, certainly travels travelers won't want to come because you've got to be an iso for what two weeks before you can actually go out there and see the country are you saying that migration will in increase because and people will put themselves through that in order to move to a different country um yeah, i know potentially it's a yeah. scheme of things but you know like is that something that we see ahead of us because I mean, are we going to be traveling? Are we going to be doing all the things that we've been do- doing before? What's in, the world in looking sh- like? In short, until the until globally we solve COVID, you're going to have hard quarantine at the border. That is effectively inevitable. Um, yeah. Which you know, if this is this is what we used to do. So if you if for those that remember the first Godfather film, when when uh, the a young Colleone enters United States and he's on Ellis Island, he's in quarantine there. Um, he was in quarantine for weeks. You know, we used to, we used to do this. Um, and then we kind of stopped because, you know, how medical science got to a point where we weren't so worried about those infectious diseases. I suspect we will have a relatively hard quarantine up until the point when the, this is solved globally or, or the viruses. Yeah. So the virus either, either we've developed herd, herd immunity in some form or we've solved uh, we've do, we've we've achieved a vaccine, so I don't think that you're going to see a lot of tourism, but you could see a lot of people coming to Australia permanently or semi permanently to study and to work if Australia does well. Um, the 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 hard part of it is if we if we don't manage to uh, control COVID or we do as badly as everyone else, then I don't think you'll see a lot of migration to Australia at all. So I think it's incredibly uncertain. But in the world where we don't see a lot of migration, that's going to have huge impacts on on construction. Um, and even what about Aussies coming back to Australia? I mean, if you're living in New York right now and, um, you know, you'd probably wish you were back home, you know, for example, or, you know, even London, you know, I think um, if those economies are going to get smashed and you've been worried about your health and your family back in Australia, you know, you do start to think, do you know, do you come back to, you know, home? I think, you know, so you're going to get that sort of, you know, the brain drain that did go overseas for work, potentially that opportunity is not there anymore. Maybe they, they come back to Australia. Do you think that's going to happen as well? Yeah, I do think that will happen to a degree. Obviously, other countries have done something different to us in the sense that they've included temporary migrants in their own countries in their equivalent of JobKeeper and their wage subsidy schemes, and Australia is not. So if you're a, an Australian living in London and you've lost your job because of what's happened, at least in the short term, you're still being paid. Um, whereas if you're a temporary migrant in Australia, you are not, and that's going to do a lot of harm to our international reputation, not, not yeah. reciprocating 
those payments to those that are currently here for work and, you know, working for firms that are struggling and the farm ca- firm can't pay them and has to lay them off because they don't get JobKeeper for that group. Um, but I think long-term, yeah, you could see quite a lot of people come back to Australia because, which is what we saw during the GFC as well. You know, yeah, we, sure. I, we almost moved to the UK and we didn't basically because of, of the GFC. Um, yeah. You know, the opportunities aren't there. You'll see more people at home. It's a bit of chicken and egg though, isn't it? When you're talking about um, potentially if we do well in this country, um, immigration will rise again. But what will, how will that work with unemployment the way, it is, the way it's going to be? You know, what jobs will they do? Well, that's right. It, it's all about the relative performance of Australia compared to other countries. So if the unemployment rate in Australia is 6% and it's 10% in the US or 12% in the US, then you'll see a lot of people come home. Uh, because even though there's less employment opportunities than there was pre-crisis, there's a hell of a lot more than what there is anywhere else. That's returning um, expats, though, as opposed to new immigrants. Well, n- new migrants, we know that new migrants themselves also create a lot of employment opportunities because they increase demand. So it's a, it's a big source of aggregate demand. Um, yeah. So it, it's again, it's about the relative effect, how, how well Australia is doing economically and on the public health front compared to everyone else. So if we're doing well, even if we're at the, if, you know, we had an unemployment rate that was, you know, got up a couple of percentage points during the GFC and we still had very strong migration through that period, uh, basically because we had better, uh, we had a better economy than than everyone else. Is there any sort of I, I, I hear sort of anecdotally from overseas uh, a lot of sort of health professionals, doctors, nurses, etc., basically saying that when this is all done and dusted, they're leaving their profession. They're they're just PTSD and they're burned out basically. And I've been hearing anecdotally a bit of a few teachers, particularly from the public. Um, education system saying similar things. Um, is there any sort of talk or modelling or, or data on, I mean, anything on this in terms of some of these real changes in terms of how people are going to respond en masse in, that have been in those industries or um, professions that have been particularly impacted by this? I think it's too early to, to tell. I, I suspect you'll see a surge in mental health issues in, in the in the health workforce. Yeah. Less mm. probably less so in Australia because we well, so far, thankfully, we have not had the same sort of outcomes we've seen abroad. Um yeah. but you know, we are putting ourselves, you know, I just think of our own circumstance, we've got a three or a one year old at home. It's a, it's an incredibly stressful situation. Mm. Uh, but yeah. it's nowhere near as stressful as being in a New York hospital. Um, no. <laughs> just oh, the, sheer, the sheer degree of, 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 um, of stress that people are going through over this period, yeah, it's going to have long-term consequences, but I just don't think we know enough about what that's going to look like yet. So in terms of shock absorbers um, for the economy, um, obviously we've got to be thankful for our low Australian dollar. Um, you know, whether that's for future tourism or future investment or for people buying our resources and things like that. Do you think that will be a huge kind of tailwind to, to kind of really get us out of this um, rather than if the dollar was at, say, 85 or 90 cents or back over a dollar, that which it was before? I probably think of it the other way, which is that a low dollar suggests that, you know, obviously you prefer a low dollar to a high dollar all else equal because it does have the effect of um, making certain sectors of the economy more more competitive. 
I, I, I'm very, I'm very pessimistic about the global situation though, because, um, you look at even at say, say China. So, uh, China is, you know, on the, on the, on the way out of, of, of shutdowns. Um, yep. but the economy is still running 10 to 15% below where it was pre-crisis, uh, or pre-COVID, pre-shutdowns, you know, coal consumption is, is lower, a lot and electricity consumption is lower. Um, what, what really worries me is that we, if we get back to where we, to a, a steady state out the other side of this, that is the economy, major economies growing uh, with activity 10% below where we were previously, that is still the definition of a depression. So we haven't yet seen any country show that it can walk the line, the thread, the needle between openness to ensure activity can occur and um, managing the public health crisis to make sure we don't see a resurgence in infections. We thought we were there with Singapore and then they've had to go into lockdown because basically they had a bunch of temporary migrants, um, a large the temporary migrants who they, they weren't housing very well that has seen a, an incre- a big increase in infections. Until we see... Yeah, a country thread that needle. I don't think we can be confident that we're going to get out of this anytime soon. Once we do, then we're confident. Yeah, I was watching the ABC last night, and they were talking about Sweden. I I couldn't quite get actually why it's supposedly working over there. Are you sort of up to date on any of that? It's it's like they've sacrificed the old people. (laughs) But they're still getting on with life, and I, I actually do not get why they don't have a crisis. There's so many unknowns. I, you know, we were, I was reading stuff the other day that, you know, there's concerns that maybe the strains are different in different countries so that Italy has a more dangerous strain of COVID than because it's mutating than, say, the parts of the United States like Washington State. Wow. Um, we just don't – we really don't know enough about what this, what this thing looks like. I, I agree it is – what Sweden's done is basically open up, leave the economy relatively open um, and – at pursuing something that looks a bit like a herd immunity strategy where you you try to manage the number of people that have the virus at any one time and therefore the demands on the health system. Um, it certainly allowed the economy to keep functioning, but there are two big unknowns there. One, we don't know um, whether you develop herd immunity from COVID. Like that is something we genuinely do not know. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of coronaviruses or a lot of viruses like flu viruses, the reason they come back is because you don't develop immunity permanently and so you Mm. get these sweeping infections through the community over time and secondly we don't know what the long-term health impacts are so you know you don't know what long-term costs uh, to someone's health you're you're imposing by even though the death rate might be 0.5 percent and therefore um you know and you're trying to be careful with older older people uh they're the two big risks so we just don't know the answers to those questions and one of the things i would say is that the way australia's gone about this which is to shut down relatively early um, is the right approach because we can learn from other countries. In the yes. next three or four weeks, we will see what country, where countries have got to in being able to reopen and you'll see that some countries make mistakes that then we will be able to avoid. And we're quite or fortunate there be. because of the timing there, aren't we? Because, you know, we've got it a bit later than everybody else. That's right. So we had the advantage of foresight only by a couple of weeks, but a couple of weeks is mm. all that matters, um, that we shut down... I thought we would probably have a larger rate of infection based on what everything that we've seen abroad. And 
it's it's reassuring. I think because we had so many international cases that actually inf- that that led to more numbers earlier for us that caused us to shut down when the rate of community infection was yeah. relatively low. Oh. Like a ruby princess. I mean, <laughs> look, I, I laugh with disbelief. You know, that's just appalling uh, what happened there for all, all those passengers as well. But, um, yeah, without that, uh, our situation could be quite different, but it, it could have been a hell of a lot worse, obviously, as well. And so the, the real so, question here is what we do. So do we try to eradicate or do we try to live with it the way Sweden and other countries have? Um, but you can't eradicate it because if you eradicate it, then you basically got to close your borders forever, right? Well, you got to close your borders until you get um, a either a vaccine or it's or, or you've solved the problem globally. I we uh, we do come down on the side of eradication in general for two, for for one big reason, which is that the epidemiological modelling that we've looked at from University of Sydney, University of Melbourne says that you could probably get rid of COVID in Australia by June. Um, with the kind and that the kind of measures we put in place right now are are on track to do that. The, if the alternative where you open things up, it's a question of how much you can open up, and if you can only open up enough, uh, where some where say schools reopen, you know the question is can you reopen um, restaurants and cafes and all the rest of it before you get the rate of infection back above one, so the number of people each person's infecting is above one. And so to believe that eradication is not the right strategy, given that a vaccine is probably 18 months away, you've got to believe that the economic costs of eradication are six times more for each month that they're in place than what the alternative strategy is. And I, I hear you on international tourism and the borders, but the borders only account for a couple percent of GDP, whereas mm. we know that restaurants and cafes and a lot of businesses account for 20% of GDP. Um, and I'd probably choose a world where the borders are largely shut or heavily quarantined, as they are now in yeah. places like Korea, over a yeah. world where we just accept that, okay, we'll have to have recurrent shutdowns or try to thread the needle with very with things being opened up very gradually for a long time. I suspect the costs of the former are less than the latter. Oh, I would 100% agree. I think that... Um, how is that going to play out, though, in terms of our lives? So hopefully, yes, by if that modelling is correct, by June it could be eradicated. We then, um, you know, live differently until it's solved, as you say. Um, in the meantime, you know, what I guess what do you think is going to be the damage, the permanent damage, or is there going to be permanent damage to employment? Um, how is that going to filter into into property prices because that also has a wealth effect right so that in itself people feeling like their home is worth more or less gives them confidence to go out and spend money so it's all sort of so intrinsically linked and so psychologically linked as well um how do you see that sort of playing out i i think we're about to experience where we're, we're going through an incredible experiment where we'll discern we'll see how important monetary policy is for property prices versus fundamentals because mm. we've cut interest rates from, oh, well, look, the average mortgage rate's gone from something with about a four in front of it or a bit less to something that's probably closer to a th- that's got a three, maybe even a two in front of it. So you've cut interest rates by, seven, say, 50, 75 basis points. On the RBA's modelling, that's enough to raise property prices by 15%, say. Um on the and, and we now expect interest rates will probably stay low for a very long time. 
On the flip side, you've now got no migration. Um, a whole bunch of Airbnbs are now being put onto the rental market. Yeah. Those things, <laughs> you know, on this on that same RBA work, those hits to demand would probably suggest a hit to prices of five or six percent. You know, because you've taken away two, you've added two percent to the dwelling stock. Um, my guess is the 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 hit to property prices will pro- my guess is unless there's an un- there's a fire sale of people who are who have gone bankrupt the hit to prices actually won't be that large mm. that's that uh, noting that it's incredibly uncertain but my guess is just that the the interest rate hit is is you know property has almost become you know residential property trade it's almost like buying a, a futures contract on interest rates <laughs> Um, and I don't, I, you know, we still care about fundamentals and we still think we should make sure we fix supply and planning rules and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of what happens to the price level, I do wonder how much of it is just going to be driven by rates in the absence of a financial crisis. Um, and I don't, the governments and policymakers have shown that they've learned the lessons of the last recession uh, or the, the financial crisis that we probably won't have a financial crisis out the back of this uh, if they'll work, they'll work very hard to avoid that. It's interesting too because I, we see, I mean, obviously, like you say, so much of this is unknown and, and individuals have individual financial situations as well. So some people will have pressures and others won't and they may both have lost their jobs, you know. Um, so there's no uniform response, I guess, because nobody, no two people have got the same financial um, pressures. But if people don't list their property for sale, then they can't sell and then you can't really work out whether prices are falling or not. And so what we're, what we're seeing certainly on the ground here as well is that people aren't feeling pressure yet, whether they feel that in six months or so, we don't know yet, but they're certainly not at the moment. There's very few people putting their property on the market saying, right, well, I'm going to take a bargain basement price. They're putting it, they're still being speculative, <laughs> which is sort of interesting. Um, and you know, and while that remains to be the case, when you don't have any pre- any for sales, then you're not going to have this great flood of opportunity for for you know investors that want to capitalise on this. So it's sort of interesting just to watch human behaviour on the ground at the minute too, um, and We're to wonder how long that can be buffered for, or that can be, or that can remain for, I guess, across the board. I agree with you that supplies are the thing that we don't know what's going to happen. In some areas, you know, because of the payment holidays, that is masking things a lot. Um, and those things won't last forever. We, you know, JobKeeper um, and all these sort of things are masking things a lot because people can still afford mortgages and, you know, cutting childcare and making that free. Like there's so many things that are, that are happening. Access to super, which is a thing that I want to ask you about, Brendan, in a sec. But there's things that are just masking things that won't last forever and it depends on whether you know, at the end of that period, whatever that is, let's say it's six months, you know, do can finance households go back to things as normal and because of low interest rates um, or do they have to sell and that does that increase supply or do investors get out? Um, I guess on the demand side, um, without doubt, I've been going through, you know, not only are banks becoming extremely tough with mortgage applications, doing things like they were in 2018, but, you know, applicants desire to take out debt is definitely decreasing um, and then their ability to how much they can borrow based on their incomes because of changes the bank policy is changing as well so regardless we're going to see the 
the amount of people wanting to borrow is going to have is going to decrease, um, and it's just whether the supply decreases enough to keep that house prices kind of balanced. And I I, I actually think in, in some areas you'll see the demand for credit to drop dramatically. For example, you know investors um, and the amount of supply to potentially increase. Say for example, high rises. Um, so you're going to see these dislocations in the market. Brendan, before we kind of go to, uh, you know, a Dumbo, which I don't know if you, you've got one for us, access to super, I think this could be the Dumbo, but <laughs> do you think that's a good idea? You spoke about those temporary residents. I think this is a great idea for them. Um, give them access to their super now to get them through over the next six months. But do you think it's a good policy and why? I think it is a good policy because... It is basically there as a backstop for the fact that the government's policies to provide income support or to sort of, to use Scott Morrison's words, build a bridge to the other side are inherently imperfect. They're not going to help everyone perfectly. Now, in the case of temporary migrants, they're not helping them by design, and I think that's a mistake. But certainly, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that high-income earners aren't fully insured against the, the prospect of their job losses and they're their expenses, their commitments tend to be proportionate to their income. So I think early access to super is actually there as the extra insurance mechanism for high-income earners that, that lose their jobs through this period or, or experience financial stress. Um, the mistake, I suppose, that the government made is that it announced the social distancing rules um, and put in place early access to super before it did JobKeeper. And so there's a bunch of people who are on lower incomes and casuals and younger that are picking up or applying for super now because they need the cash because the JobKeeper payments and the JobSeeker payments are going to take longer to hit their bank accounts. Um, but on the whole, I think the policy is actually a sensible one um, because it's designed as a backstop for those that would otherwise struggle. And there's been this commentary in the public debate about, oh, if you take super out, 20 grand of super out, you're going to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of your retirement. And I think a lot of that's been quite overblown because of two things. One, super doesn't operate in a vacuum. You have higher super, so you have less super, but you get more age pension and most people in future will be on a part pension. And so our numbers suggest that if you take uh, money out of your super, $20,000 as a 35-year-old, for example, then the hit to your total retirement income is only about 20 grand or about 800 bucks a year over your retirement because it's not actually, you're not on the hook for the costs of, of taking your super out. The government is because that's, they'll have to pay higher pensions to a lot of those people. So I think the hit to super is a good thing and we should have it. Uh, but I don't think we should get too – we shouldn't put it on such a pedestal that we don't think we should ever use it uh, in circumstances like this because this is literally unprecedented. And the hit to people's incomes in retirement is actually not that large. There's also, you know, the idea of preventing people entering into retirement without their own home. You know, so if if you can – dip into super now to make sure that you keep your home rather than having to sell out of it and potentially go way backwards. You know, I mean, that's got to be part of the, the thought process, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, it will be much worse if someone loses their, their house and goes bankrupt for their retirement than if they dip 20 grand out of their super. Mm. Um, 
I, like a good way of thinking about super is that it's a blanket rule. It's a it's a crude rule that we force everyone to save nine and a half percent. And for some people that is probably too much, and some people that's too little. And mm. what this scheme does is allows people for whom saving those savings are more valuable to them today, they can take out a limited amount for a specific purpose to get them through. Um, and I think the signalling that, you know, you're taking money out of your super, I suspect will mean that a lot of people will try very hard to put it back in. I think that's pretty optimistic about people putting more into super than their nine and a half. Um, I mean, the uh, there's all stats around being compulsory or not compulsory. You look at countries where it's not compulsory. Um, you know, for example, the UK, uh, the take up on pensions is, you know, ridiculously low, hence why they're moving to the Australian system. Um I know, I know that Grattan don't believe that they should be going to 12%, but, you know, really the government needs super to stop that pension issue that you spoke about. And I guess the, the complacency of people thinking that the bat stops the pension, um, you know, it's, it's whether pensions are the same in 20, 30 years' time, if you're in your 30s or 40s now, like it's pretty dangerous strategy to, to live your life knowing that the pension's always going to save you. And I think... Um, the problem with the scheme, I believe, is that there's no real rules around it. And if you generally need it because you need to keep paying for the bills, which is your argument that those people on the lower end don't actually need it because there's JobKeeper, there's higher social security benefits, et cetera, um, they should potentially be in a financially better position. So getting access to 20 grand out of their super, um, is they don't really need to. It's just going to help the economy, which is what the idea is. Um and then there's a lot of people, for example, on higher incomes, um, you know, and have got savings, have got a little bit of, but they're just going to get access to the super because they can. Um, and whether they, um, and to justify that, they just need to show 20% drop in their income. So, you know, I just think the rules around it are ridiculously relaxed. And I personally just think it's a massive cash grab by the government just to keep propping up the economy at this point in time rather than, actually thinking through and going, is this really the best thing for those households' future um, long-term? Well, um, Chris, let me say, first of all, like super's a good idea and compulsion works, which is why we have it. Um, so we know that people won't save enough unless they have, they're compelled, and that's what its main objective is. It doesn't actually save the pension, the government much, compulsory super as a whole doesn't save the pension much money, the government much money in pension because the tax breaks are larger than the, the pension savings. And that's true mm-hmm. even in the long term. It's going to cost us more in the pension. They cost us more in tax breaks than what you get back via um, lower pension spending. Even Treasury work has certainly shown that in the past. I think in this instance, you know, so what super is there for is to help people save more of their own money. It doesn't actually save the government very much at all. Um, what super in this instance is doing or this scheme is doing is it has to be a fairly relaxed set of restrictions because, or a fairly relaxed set of rules because otherwise it would take too long for people that need the money to get it. Um, and to administer, be a nightmare. So super funds are not very well placed to make these many, to, to administer the scheme. That's why the ATO is doing it through the early access yeah. regime. And I suspect what the, the ATO should be doing is they should be policing, you know, you could, you know, when you think of your tax return, the, the, the ATO doesn't ask you to show evidence of every receipt when you put it into MyGov. What the mm-hmm. ATO does is they say, hey, put in your tax return, but there'll be a whopping big stick if we catch you out lying on your tax return and your deductions and you'll get fined. And 
I think that's probably the way they need to approach this is there hasn't been a lot of public communication saying, look, there'll be consequences if you try to take the money out and prove that you don't need it. We'll force you to have to put it back in or we'll tax you some more or we'll do something else. And I think that's probably where the problem yeah. is, is that at the moment there probably there are people who will be able to take money out of the scheme who probably don't need it. Um, and they'll be able to take it out tax-free. There's, in fact, some big tax advantages to doing it. You take the money out and you put it straight back in and you save yourself up 100%. to three or $4,000 in tax. <laughs> um, and so yeah. obviously I'm not advocating that or recommending that to your, to your listeners, <laughs> uh, but it is something that exists and the ATO should be on top of that by restrict by by being clear in the communication that you will they will audit the process and if you can't show that you are it there'll be some sort of there'll be some sort of redress down the mm. track. Yeah, and that's the thing. I've got um, you know, it, you could show that. For example, uh, you know, uh, let's say you work in the big four accounting firms. They've all had a twenty percent cut for their income. So pretty much all the big four accounting firms, if you work there, you could potentially go get access to 20 grand in your super fund. And then as soon as you get your hours go back to full time, you just then salary sacrifice that in. And like you say, get a tax write-off. So, um, you know, there's just things that I just think that make it too easy to gain the system. Um, and, um, you know, people already distrust super. Um, and if you give them an opportunity to get access to that, they don't know really the long-term impacts on themselves. And I actually think they are quite large because, you know, reality is, you know, I, I believe the modelling shows that it's too light, but I think Grattan believe that it's too much. So we'll leave that one to another day. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Brendan, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I'm afraid I don't really have one today. Um... I think I use I spent my only property dumbo last time I was on the show. <laughs> it was a good one. That was about the pylon in the middle of the lounge room, wasn't it? That's right. So you know, hopefully we'll hopefully we fix um we'll fix those uh, those construction standards over the course of the next couple of years. Well, I don't know about that because I think you know there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of. Uh, enthusiastic support of the construction industry to get us out of this mess. So <laughs> I'm not sure that that's a, an environment that is really conducive to sorting out the problems in the construction industry when it comes to residential property. <laughs> yes, look, we've, you know, the world's changed and the debates we were having pre-COVID, you know, it'll be interesting to see which ones endure and which ones uh, get put on the back burner. <laughs> yes. Well, I've actually got one. I've been horrified. I've, I've mentioned a few times in the podcast that uh, we've been going through open houses and, you know, I've just been finding that agents haven't necessarily been taking it too seriously, this idea of social or not just an idea of social distancing but actually the law. And so we've been taking it very seriously in our business. Um, I recently heard there's one particular agency where the young blokes, the, the very, you know, gung-ho, aggressive salespeople, they've got a competition running as to how many people they can actually get inside a house at the same time during COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating to be honest. I mean, I, um, you know, on the weekend we were kind of walking around with Ellie and, um, you know, I would see, you know, families with kids, uh, catching up with other families with kids. I'd see groups of five, got five guys sitting on the beach together. I saw, you know, girls all drinking, um, you know, by the water. So it's like, 
I guess the whole Australian mentality is, you know, she'll be right, um, is extremely frustrating, especially when you come into the professional arena when, you know, you're meant to be, a, you know, acting professional. So, you know, for me, I just think it's absolute bollocks and shouldn't be happening. So, yeah, not good. It does make me somewhat embarrassed to be a real estate agent, to be honest, and I'm actually quite astounded at some of the arrogance and ignorance um, it's not everyone, but it is more widespread than I would have thought and would have hoped for. And it's very, very disappointing that, you know, as I said, particularly this group that are really treating it like a game. And I just think that that's abominable. So, you know, my Dumbo is not actually about buyers. It's actually about agents in this particular instance. Brendan, it's so good for you to join us today. I really appreciate you giving us all these insights uh, into, yeah, basically all the big things that you guys uh, are looking into, but obviously micro and macro level that we, and all the questions that we have, we don't know the answers to these questions, but we can certainly see some of the impacts that are happening. And it's great to have some considered um, debate and considered opinion as to how this can play out. So we really appreciate your time. No, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... So there's so much research which we spoke about on this podcast around how little families have um, available in case of emergencies. And, you know, Advice 101, you know, the first strategy that we've always taught as financial advisors is to set up an emergency fund. Um, ideally, you know, three to six months of your net monthly income um, just there available in case something changes. And the people who had that um, going into this crisis um, would have gone in there a lot with a lot less stress and a lot less fearful um, on what could happen to their work situation. And when they did potentially get the call or, you know, the knock on the door that, um, you know, that they're not going to have a job anymore um, or they're going to get a pay cut or, you know, or their industry is going to, you know, the bonuses aren't going to get paid. Those people aren't going to um, have to go through that emotional stress of finances, the people who haven't got the buffers. So, you know, emergency money does matter because that's what, you know, will get you through um, emotionally in these situations. So, but, you know, it's pretty scary when, you know, 50 to 70% of the population can't even raise, you know, five to 10 grand. So um, for those uh, who aren't doing that, you know, really get that sorted because you can't really look at other things until you've got an emergency buffer. Please join us for our next episode when we get the lowdown on online auctions, how effective they have been, whether they are in fact going to be the way of the future or whether they will die a death and we'll all go back to on-site auctions. We have a great conversation with Damien Cooley who actually has an online auction platform. So he is very well placed to be able to give us the lowdown on the differences and the ways that buyers and owners and agents have performed in these two different scenarios. Scenarios. Join in because there's a lot to learn about buyer behaviour in this one. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.